Hi everybody and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here. I'm with my new friend, Miguel Mera. And Miguel, we're sitting in a coffee shop that represents, apparently, Melbourne bringing its so-called culture to London. Is this so? Yeah, the coffee culture of, of, uh, of Melbourne has come to London. So. Uh, it used to be called Saint Ali, I think, and now it's called Workshop. I don't know why they've changed the name. Now, do we need Melbourne's coffee culture? Apparently so. Apparently it's different. Um, and apparently, well, if you, if you, uh, as you and I work at City University, if you get a coffee there, then it's really crap coffee. So, <laughs> so frankly, anything is better than that. But, but no, apparently it's uh, it's an improvement on your Costas and your Starbucks. All right. and actually, it tastes pretty good so far. Does it? Well, it took a while to get here, making us think that it might have been flown from Melbourne. But actually, now that I settle into the place, I see that there is a, the biggest coffee grinder since Dennis Compton's knee gave out on him and he stopped batting for England in 1956, which is located just to the rear of your left cheek, so to speak. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed. (laughs) Often things are located there, I found. (laughs) Indeed. Now, as regular listeners to the podcast will know, I'm just putting Miguel at ease. (laughs) It's it's working. In an easy-handed way. (laughs) Thank you very much. And... What I want to talk about uh, reading Miguel today is music, and you are Mr. Music at City University. Yeah, I work at City and I'm head of the Centre for Music Studies there. So. But I don't really want to talk about City, I want to talk about your music mm. and your work as a composer sure. particularly. Um, you've done all kinds of different things, can you tell us a little bit about Maybe your most recent project. Um, well, it's been very quiet lately. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's all we've got time for, listeners. Thanks. Um, the, the most recent things is um, actually pitches, um, pitches for um, several projects that I didn't get, which in itself is is quite. That's very interesting. interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've pitched for two two adverts recently, both of which are on the telly at the moment with someone else's music. Um, so the advertisements are failures. That's rent. right, yes, yeah, it's a disaster. <laughs> and they, they, they made the wrong choices. Um, but what normally happens is they throw out... Um, Thank you very much. They throw out a pitch to various composers, uh, usually coming through publishers or, um, or agents. So there's a, there's, they never tell you how many people are doing it, but you kind of know that there's maybe 10 to 15 people who are pitching for these things. So, um, and you get um, briefs from the sublime to the ridiculous. Um, My Honda advert brief was 40 pages long, uh, with each page contradicting the previous page. This must be written by somebody at City University in the administration. (laughs) Yes, probably. (laughs) I didn't check, but... uh, Yeah, that, that's um, that's what well, that's what ad- advertising is like. I mean, people are trying to sort of they think they know who their market is. They try and identify who their their market is, but that's full of contradictions in all sure, sorts of ways. Sure, sure. Um, so you you get a brief and then you read it and you think I don't know how I'm meant to take that, so I'll just do my own thing, really. Um, it comes from the ad agency. It, it comes from the ad agency and to me via, in my case, my publisher. By your publisher. Now, uh, do, does your pitch take the form of both a potential fee and also a little bit of music? 
Um, yes, I compose pretty much the, the music for the advert, as you think it's going to be. Uh, sometimes there's a, a fee for doing that, sometimes there's, there's not, and it's kind of up to you whether you think it's worth sort of going for it or not. I mean, it's very, it's very lucrative if you get the gig yeah. and, the, and the royalties from, um, from the performance royalties from it. Yeah. So um, uh, lots of people are very keen to, to do it. Um, and it was, yeah, and two different differing examples. The other one was a Strongbow advert, which I was much happier with and thought was pretty good and was in the final stages. And then they decided not to use a composer at all and just use a pre-existing piece of music anyway. So, um, but these things don't, they don't take long, but they do take sort of quite a, a bit of, of effort. I mean, it's Emotional sort of intense. Energy. And do you listen to the music they've used in previous commercials campaigns? Um, I did with the Strongbow one because that's probably a clearer in, in that case the brief was so sort of vague actually that it, they didn't really the other one was 40 pages and the other one was kind of nothing you know so so that was a, a way of thinking about what is it that they're really aiming, who they're really aiming at that's interesting what's easier for you massive but contradictory detail or a kind of lay down mosaic well I like um, working it out myself but um, only if that sort of then aligns you know, obviously, with what they're actually aiming for. So, you could have a fantastic, you know, idea you think, but then if it doesn't really, especially with something like advertising, very, very clearly targeted at particular groups, and um, and and a whole brand and identity is tied up in it. You know? Yeah. In fact, I, I'm, I tell a lie. There was some. There was a brief. They said filmic. They wanted filmic, and they wanted epic. And Does that, that kind that of mean it. strings, doesn't it? Yeah, that's kind of what it meant for me. Um, although that's not what um, I understand other people kind of did. But um, um, I had a kind of a big orchestral sort of thing going yeah. on for that one. Yeah. Um, and the thing that's ended up on it is is actually from a film, but it's a it's um, a Craig Armstrong score from a film sort of 10 or 15 years ago. It's a great track. And you kind of think, oh, if I knew that's what you wanted, why didn't you kind of say that's what you well, wanted? Well, you see, your work may have helped them decide what they wanted. Yeah, I think that's that's often how they're using um, the composer's pitching for these things. And, um, and it's to reconcile the, you know, the ten different people who have to make a decision on this, to reconcile what they're actually yeah. sort of aiming for. So, Wouldn't they um, end up paying more for that if they're reusing something from a film? Possibly. Possibly. So, but... But money, but money isn't such a, a concern actually. There, there, are, you know, there is big money within advertising, not so much within the UK film industry, where um, um, there would be sort of those kinds of concerns on most sort of mid to low budget kind of films. Um, but yeah, uh, in, in the advertising, once you've got the gig, the, all, all resources you need are kind of there, okay. and, there's, and there's no. You know, can you can you double up to the orchestra and say, chaps, could you just? Play this symphony on roads on the weekend. Yeah, yeah. We've we've only got to record thirty seconds today. So while we're here for the next three hours, could we? I've got this other piece. Would you mind? Well, yeah. If you're paying people, and actually, if you're doing it properly by the books, and MU rules means you've got to book them for a minimum of three hours. So, you know, people are booking recording sessions of three hours to record thirty seconds of music and then done, you know, in ten minutes. So wonderful. Yeah. Oh, all power to be union. So yeah. Anyway, that, that they were the ones that didn't didn't, didn't work. Didn't quite work out. But they were. Um, but but it's useful keeping the arm in. Yeah. Um, and I've not done a great deal of advertising actually. So I was going to say, how does one train for that? 
Is to be a, a uh, film composer or, or to compo- do... No, composer for TV commercials, for, for advertisements. I am... Um, I don't know how you train to be a composer full stop, really. Um, <laughs> the... The reason I've not done very much of it is that I previously thought I'm not very good in, sh- in short form things. Yeah. There are people who are fantastically good at getting to the sort of the heart of it in 30 seconds or whatever. And I've always thought I needed sort of longer. And certainly within film stuff, you know, a, queue, a queue would be three minutes, four minutes, something like that. Yeah. And a feature film, you're developing over a longer period of time, and you're repeating material, and you're developing ideas, all the rest of it. So, so I've previously kind of avoided those kind of things and turned down. You know, if if something's come via the agent and they've gone, would you want to have a go at this? I've kind of gone, yeah, I don't know if I really am, am any good at it, kind of thing. Well, famously, of course, when you were two years old, you turned down a chance to write the theme song to Live and Let Die. I know. And I know. handed it on to Paul McCartney. I know. I guess I know. that's what you're best known for, really. Yeah, for turning things down, yeah. <laughs> um, mistakenly, foolishly. Um, <laughs> no, so, um, but I, I, because it was quick, they're quick turnarounds, yeah. it's easy, and you think, I might as well have a go, and also, I think, oh, I've not really done anything for a, a while, I should keep my arm in. Yeah, thing. sure. Um, and, and just also to let you know the agent know that I'm still there and doing things and you know they should be making more of an effort on my behalf and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So um, is the agent the publisher? Are they one? The no, I, they're, they're they're in a relationship. So my agent um, is a guy who runs a company called First Name Music. He's called Lawrence Aston. Um, and the publisher is Music Sales, which is uh, Novello um, imprint. So. That, so Ivan Novello's yeah, Ivor, company. Yeah, and they have um, one of my all-time favourite singers, movie stars. Yeah, yeah, great guys. Yeah. Um, and they have their various sort of wings and music sales, film and TV deals with the film and TV right. composers and. Um, and there are the, the great and the good are amongst my um, compatriots within that, and, and then there are some of us who are, you know, lower down the <laughs> less chain. great and less, less great. great. Yes, indeed. Yeah. And, but to, to be serious, um, compared to your longer form composing, did you find this took less time, or did it actually take the same amount? It, um, it takes it takes less time to compose the material. And, I mean, you're given an, a ridiculous deadline anyway. I mean, something arrives. You are with film and TV composing generally, but something will arrive, you know, on a Monday afternoon, let's say, and, you know, it's got to be delivered by Wednesday morning, something like that. So it's basically whether you're, you've got that period free or not. Um, if you're not doing something else or if you can move stuff in the schedule and go, I'm going to do that and sprint to the deadline, basically. So um, so it's good in, in that sense, sort of... The flexing muscles and yeah, know, all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, uh, what was the question? It, was, it wasn't really about. Was it no, about deadlines or was no, it? No, it was actually about the time dedicated yeah, to yeah. the process. But you've already explained that, I think, uh, very effectively. That I it's, think it's um, very tight. On, on most projects, um, the composing bit doesn't end up taking the majority of the time. By composing, I mean the coming up with the the idea. Yeah. Um, and on something like a, an, um, an advert, there's no, there's no time for soul searching. You just get something out, yeah. and it could be good, bad, indifferent, whatever. Yeah. Um, on film projects, you might sort of spend a little bit more time conceptualising, and then, yeah. then when it comes out, it's out. The, what takes most of the time is making it 
sound um, polished, sort of within the computer, if that's what you're working with. Uh, no, I've got French toast. Oh, sorry, mine's toast. I just knew it wasn't mine, so I thought it was this. That's mine. Thank you. Wow. Yes. Wonderful. That's lovely. Thank you very, very much. Wow, that was good. Look at that thing. <laughs> it's, it's bigger than I thought. Hey, look at this thing. This is, uh, you know, it's got cojones, look. <laughs> and little else. <laughs> yeah, so um, uh, a lot of time making the thing, especially with the agua, you, you get the thing done very quickly, but then you spend tons and tons of time making it have a professional sheen, making sure that if you're using um, the computer only, there's no live instruments, that it sounds like something was real if you're faking an orchestra. Yeah. Um, and that's that's true of film stuff as well, but um, but there's kind of more chance for the sort of negotiation between. A director might hear a demo, and it might not be a very good demo in terms of its finished polish. Yeah, yeah. But you're talking about concept, so it's okay. And you know that that's going to be recorded at some stage, and it's going to sound professional at that at that point. Uh, Miguel, I'm going to talk a little bit, so you have a bit of time to chow down. Um, I had uh, a quest. I had two questions that I'll put to you while you're having your first bite of. What is that? Actually? It's, it's a French, French toast, toast, but no, it's it's, um, it's a take on French. It's, it's got rhubarb in it. It seems Melbourne imported French mm. toast. Again. So it's a two-part question. Good. One comes in the form of a short story, not terribly long, but long enough for you to have a couple of bites. And the other is just a very quick question. The short story is I was in LA last week and I was in a bar and I got talking this early afternoon and I was there because I'd finished lunch early and was waiting for somebody and there was a drunk musician <laughs> next to me. You'll be astonished to learn. Oh uh, yeah, uh, yeah, amazing. And this guy had done the whole hog. Um, he was either a violist or a violinist. He had done the performance bit. He was also very committed to the theory and the history and had done a doctorate in those. And fundamentally, he couldn't get work anywhere. Uh, he said that uh, only Europe gave any prospect in performance terms. Even famous orchestras like the Cleveland one in Ohio, which you would have heard of, some of us may not have, but one of the most famous in the United States, uh, gives away tickets and even then is half full at home. Um, and that in terms of film music, there's no hope at all because nobody pays for an orchestra. So because nobody pays for an orchestra. Right. So he was desolate. I mean, he wasn't in a bad mood. He was quite happy. He was drunk. <laughs> but he was desolate in terms of his sense of a career. And then I wanted to, you to comment on that. And then uh, I also wanted to know whether when you are composing for a commercial or an advertisement, you see the commercial first. Is it there and made, and then you write music for it? Yeah. So those, that's my kind of two-parter. One's a complicated question. Yeah, let's come back to the, the first one. Second. Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, when... Um, certainly for adverts, you get given um, pretty much a locked version of the advert. Um, the Honda one that I uh, had gone for had pretty much the finished visuals. There was a few sort of graphics um, uh, that they were going to add to it and the voiceover was there in a rough kind of draft. So there was, there was grading to be done. It's, it's, very, it's basically final polishing to it. The film is kind of finished when you get it. Sure. So it's the same as with a TV show or a movie? Well, it depends. Um, it depends at what point you get employed. 
Um, the prevailing industry practice is for the composer to be brought in after everything else has been done, pretty much. So, um, and there are some advantages to that, um, but quite a lot of disadvantages in, in my view. Um, the, the problem is this term post-production, as if it's something that we think about you know, after, and, and what, what ends up happening, or what I think I've, I've found difficult about it, is that it feels like you're decorating the film with music sometimes, rather than growing a score that you know organically belongs at the heart of that film. If every decision has been taken about how the film is edited, about how it looks, and, and all the rest of it, um, and the music has not been there as part of that, then in essence all of the decisions have been taken about what you can do. And often there's a temp track as well, which makes it even more narrow, you know, we want the music to sound like this. So, you and I talked about that when we had a gossipy, sorry, uh, a wonderful night of intellectual exchange a few yeah, weeks yeah. ago. That Frequently, directors just throw something on that they like, right? That makes sense to them in terms of the storyline. Yeah. And then you guys are asked to fill that out, or yeah. you know, do something that's out of copyright, as it yeah. were. Yeah. Do 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 that, but not yeah, not so we that, don't get sued. That. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you know, your contract will often say that it's um, you know you must come up with original music, and it's you know you will get sued if you don't you know. Nice. Have the original music. So, so Time Warner says, "Dear Professor, <laughs> it's on you, yeah. buddy." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So um, that's gotta um, love capitalism. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, in, of course, it's a catch-all in a contract. In reality, it, it doesn't quite yeah. work. But um, yeah, that's that's one of the big the big challenges that you um, the, there are so many models that people are drawing on, and yeah. they're trying to sort of emulate those and recreate those. Um, a much better working model, though, which I, I've had sort of experience of, is, is for me, not for every film composer. They don't, they don't, every, not everyone likes to work this way. Is to start writing music much earlier and to write to the script, um, because you're, it's much more free what you can do. You're dealing only with the concepts and what the core of the, the film is about from yeah. reading the script. You're not worried about making something fit because the edit. You know, cuts at that point, so you, it has to last exactly 22 seconds. You're not worried about those kind of details. You're just worried about what the music is communicating, what so it conveys. You're right in that sense. In that at that moment, you're working more closely with the screenwriter, as you imagine or know him or her to be, than you are with the director, aren't you? That's a power shift in a certain sense, isn't it? It could be. I guess um, in the cases where I've done it, the director has been the scriptwriter as well. Um, or it's in situations where I've worked with that director. Very not in a new relationship with a with a director. Never have I been brought in early in in the process. But if you work with someone, then they might go well. You know, it might be beneficial to bring in the composer. Get the old boy in. Get the old boy in and have before, a chat and see what. it gets too creaky. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and it's good. And you know, it's it, interesting. It um, maybe doesn't. I think maybe people are worried that it will cost more. It doesn't, particularly. It just it's spread out more. Um, this term post-production really is, I think, the, the problem, as if things belong in certain yes. blocks. Chronology. Chronology that's, that's of it. very tight, yeah. Um, yeah. And I have found that the music has, has been 
to me, better integrated and more satisfying yeah. Yeah. when I've had that kind of process. Yeah. Then what yeah. you do is, you, if you've written a piece, it gets used during editing, it can be used during sometimes the, the shooting of the film, or it can influence actors' performances. Um, uh, they can edit to some of the drafts of the music yeah. um, and can make all sorts of connections they wouldn't have done otherwise. And the music then has also an integrity um, that it sometimes doesn't have when you are just trying to make things fit in a particular way. Mm -hmm. So um, I found that really, really valuable. And then it's easy to change as well. If something doesn't work and now the edit's different, but the music still has its kind of core. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I would prefer to work that way almost all well, the time. I'd like to follow up on that, and we can go back to my... Yeah, we'll come back to your violist about, in a bit. Yeah, a bit later. Because this interests me a, a great deal, partly because I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your implied listener, your implied spectator, as it were. Mm. Um, again, just in the interest of narcissism and the opportunity for you to eat a bit more, let me say that I was someone who didn't much like records of film music as yep. it were, yeah. until some point in my 30s I just started loving them. And what happened? I think iTunes arrived and I partially rediscovered music as a thing you could buy easily. But another thing happened... Yeah, but why film music? Why not yeah, all sorts of other... I think it was partly I was writing a book about espionage film and television. Okay. And so I, I bought all the Bond CDs, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. And then I bought Danger Man CD and the Saint CD okay. and Man From U.N.C.L.E. CD. And I started realising that Jerry Goldsmith was an, an interesting composer. Yeah, absolutely. Or that... Uh, John Barry, I always knew, was a genius, at least by my lights, but there was a lot to listen to of him. Yeah. And my ex-wife and I were on a kind of endless, boundless search for the full soundtrack of the Ipcris file, which we never found. <laughs> but something changed, partly because of my scholarly interest and whatnot. Anyway, the point is, since then, I've come to realise that this is some of the most interesting work there is, and that I like to listen to it regardless of the film, and I often like to buy music that gives me the greatest hits of a composer, where the thing that is giving it an integrity is in fact that composer's CV rather than a story or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Do you, but what's your relationship to the film then, if you're listening to, let's say, the Ipcris file music? Is that well, in, your, in your mind, your memory? This, or? this is why I wanted to ask you about the spectatorship thing, because the... When I think of The Avengers, about which I wrote a book, I think of... Sorry, that's not what it sounds like to anybody else, but in my head that's what it sounds okay, like. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> and also the stock ITV gunshot, which I think is also a crucial part of Indeed. the soundtrack. It's always the same. Um, it's as though it's winging its way around a lotus elan driven by Mrs. Peel. <laughs> and in the case of the Ipris file, I hear those, and again, I'm not musically literate, but that kind of slow Beach Boys surf rock guitar sound yeah, yeah. is so resonant that that also has a noir third man feel. If I watch the third man, I hear the zither or the absence of the zither. Yeah. Right? So often it's, it's not so much the so called incidental music as the hit part that I associate personally okay, yeah. with the music. But if I take the trouble to listen more 
professionally or academically or in a more aesthetically involved way, then of course I notice things more generally. Frequently nowadays in, in films that have large amounts of, you know, ten rock songs, I actually most enjoy the, again, so-called incidental music that often has been composed in the piece, sticks out more to me, because I hear no unity in these different white male tenor voices, yeah, yeah, yeah. untrained, singing rock songs, many of which I like, but they do all sound rather similar, even though they're by completely different people, different instrumentation. Yeah, yeah. That's the irony, I think, so I guess that's my process, but... I, I'm just wondering, you know, who is the person you're... Is it the person who's going to, in fact, be helped with the storyline some of the time yeah. versus some... but not know that, be un, unconsciously manipulated or, or aided by you? Or is it the person who actually is sitting back and really relishing the quality of the sound in the cinema or television set and is, is interested in how you put it together? Yeah. Um, I, uh, I think the first thing to say is that um, I don't uh, particularly listen to film music away from the, the film. I don't buy, you know, albums. I don't, I don't go in for the um, orchestra uh, concerts of great sort of hits of film music. In fact, I was, I, I did go a few years ago to um, John Barry did a thing of, of Bond things at um, at the Albert Hall, and. Um, and it was a, um, there was a, a fan base of, of um, people who were totally devoted to Bond music, to Barry. They loved every aspect of it, and I felt myself very distant from that group of people, and felt very odd sitting in a concert hall listening to um, to film music in that context with a bunch of anoraks. Yeah, I suppose that's it. But it's also that. You know, this is music written for a particular context, and if you take it out of that context, you're taking away a big part of its meaning. You know, and um, so I, you know, I would buy um, uh, a CD or, or download something from iTunes or film music if I wanted to study something that was happening in the music. Um, but it's such a fundamental part of what I'm doing as a composer is how it communicates meaning in combination with those with, with the film that to take it away from that seems seem very sort of strange to me um, and you know for example there's a, there's a film I often play to my students which is um, a Theo Angelopoulos film um, the great sort of art house Greek director died a few years ago um, very slow sort of uh, films and, and um, contemplative kind of films. There's um, there's a scene in a film called Eternity in the Day, which has a, a drone for about four minutes, and it's literally a, a D minor chord and nothing else. And the camera just pans around. Um, it's um, a desolate sort of wintry border landscape, and it's all sorts of metaphors tied within it at that point in the film. Um, and literally, it's just a D minor chord, and the strings just play that for four minutes. There's no variance in dynamic. The only change you can hear is sort of retakes of the bow, but you've got to be listening really carefully to hear that. Anyway, it just sort of sits there, and you think, well, what does that, what's that music doing? What's that about? I think it's incredibly brave sort of scoring, it's in a way that most film composers would not sort of dare do. And it, it ties conceptually into other aspects of the film, and a film called Eternity in a Day, and it's about time and passing of time and all the rest of it. 
but I use it as an example of great film scoring because it's perfectly tied to um, the content and narrative of that film but it doesn't really do anything you know and you wouldn't go to a concert hall and listen to D minor for, for four <laughs> minutes and, and think what a wonderful experience so there, there is a kind of a difference between what you do musically within the context of the film and what happens when it goes to the, the concert hall. It's why there's lots of orchestral suites and arrangements of it, of particular film music. But you kind of have to change it for it to work in the, in the concert hall. And I would think completely differently about writing a concert piece from how I'd write a piece of, of film music. With the Barry concert, did they have singing? Yeah, yeah they had, um, you know, and um, George Martin appeared at one point to introduce something and, you know... And See, I think that's the problem in that I like to listen to that stuff as a totality of John Barry minus singing. And I do, right. I, I find that then there's less distraction because a lot of them, particularly the Bond themes, are very different, partly because of the nature of the singing and, and also the lyrics. And I get, I enjoy it more when it's just listening to... But you know, the great thing that Barry did um, is in those scores where there's a thematic linkage between the song and the, the material in the film. And um, David Arnold's continued that a bit because um, Casino Royale does that a bit, the, the most recent Casino Royale. Um, and that's really nice, I think, you know, where, I mean, you were talking earlier about a, um, a disconnect between the way the pop songs are used thematically within yeah. a film and the way that, I guess, composers would naturally think about linkage of material, right? Yeah. But there are films that think about it really carefully, how the pop music, I mean, in some senses it's a marketing, you know, from the 90s it was really a marketing tool and, you know, and, and that kind of funded the, the score, you know, the sales of the CDs and the album. Um, but in some films, it's really, really, really well considered. You know, uh, great British film like sort of Train Spotting. The way the pop music is is used has all sorts of clever references, intertextual, and, and so. Well, that's the thing. It's when you manage to make that movement between diegetic and non-diegetic uh, sound, isn't it? It's particularly interesting. There's a Frederick Wiseman film where. The sounds of silence, I think it is, goes from being something people are listening to on a tape recorder that you see them listening to in the documentary and hear them, to being actually part of the soundtrack directly taken from maybe What's a the master. It's, I think it's in Titicut Follies, which was his first solo film. And if it's not Titicut Follies, it's high school, which is his second one, and it's probably high school. Okay. So it's, yes, it's high school, uh, so it's 1968. Yeah. And it's about the disciplinary environment of, I think, a Philadelphia high school. But it's really interesting. It's, it, he's a cinema verite director, so it's a particularly interesting thing yeah, to yeah, do. Sure. It's just a fragment. He is an attorney, but God knows what the right situation is, <laughs> especially since that was five minutes after the graduate. Yeah, yeah. Which is 67. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But anyway, I, I hope I'm not misleading you there, but it's, a fa it's one of the most fascinating moments in film music I've ever heard. It's a, that's what it is. It's a high school class. The teacher says, and here we realise that Paul Simon writes poetry. You right. know, it's the lady with the thick glasses teaching English class thing, yeah. trying to be relevant. We all had them. And she puts on the reel to reel. Okay. And, da, 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 and then suddenly, that's not good enough for Uncle Fred. He whips it into the soundtrack yeah. extra diegetically. Yeah, yeah. It's incredibly 
I mean, it's a sort of obvious thing, but very weird for a verite director to do. Yeah, yeah. And I suspect not that usual in the 60s. I'm not sure. Anyway. Yeah. Um, well, but that, that um, the crossing of the boundary in various, you know, uh, the osmosis between what is diegetic and non-diegetic. You know, there, are, there are many, many sort of fascinating examples of that. Um, and, and it's fun to sort of work with that. I mean, I, um, and again, you can't really do that unless it's in the script and you're involved early, you know. Um, so when I've worked with some people who... I mean, I, there's a, it's more sort of arty and short film stuff that I do, but there's a director I work with who's, who's very, very concerned about music in all sorts of ways, and will change the whole sort of direction a film is going in because of you know, something that comes up or, or some kind of discussion, and, and he's able to do that because of the nature of the kind of films he's, he's making. And um, there have been loads of situations where you know he's really pushed me, particularly in those kind of diegetic, non-diegetic, extra metadiegetic kind of sort of areas, whatever just, just it use, might be. This is for sun readers, you know, who maybe <laughs> listen. Well, so di- well, diegetic music is music that appears in the film theoretically that the characters can hear. Non-diegetic music tends to be the stuff that composers write, which is the stuff that's there theoretically for the benefit of the audience only, and the characters in the film can't hear. But the whole nether worlds there are really, really sort of interesting. You know, and um, uh, and I, I love those moments where you're not sure and you're moving between, and, and you know, um, and it helps, you know, if there are narratives that you, you can have music within within them in some way, either someone playing something or an instrument or a record or, or whatever it, it might be. You know. When I'm frightened uh, somewhere in real life, I imagine film music Do you? It helps warning you. me, alerting me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, my toes. <laughs> you know there's a <laughs> you know the Mel, uh, Mel Brooks film High Anxiety yeah fantastic the, uh, one of the uh, best um, crossings of the diegetic non-diegetic sort of boundaries in that he's just taken up uh, it's a Hitchcock spoof the whole film and um, he's just taken up Mel Brooks has taken up a role as director of a psychiatric institute he's being driven to it by the driver who's picked him up at the airport and they're talking about the guy who previously held the job and um you know, they're talking about professor, blah, 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 whatever, and uh, he, uh, the driver says, he was a victim of foul play, and he sort of says it in that kind of voice, and suddenly this massive orchestral kind of accompaniment comes in, and they all start looking around the car, wondering where this, this sound is coming from, and then a bus with the uh, LA Philharmonic drives past with people all playing Madian instruments. But that, that's funny in itself. Then Mel Brooks kind of does a, oh, thank God for that. Because if, if it, it really was music that was supposed to be non-diject, then I, I would be, there would be something to worry about here, but it's okay. It's all right. And he does compose some of the music for his own films. Does he? Yeah. 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 And when uh, he had the successful musical version of the producers or the producers he that's wrote him yeah. yeah yeah I yeah. don't know whether he wrote Springtime for Hitler well, in that Germany would, that's yeah I, that's something I wish I'd written that's uh, one of the amazing amazing things so um, before we get back to the drunken violist yeah. and Cleveland uh, can you tell us where some of the places are that folks could listen to your music where they can catch it um you could go to my 
Yeah, sure. I'm done. Thank you. Yeah, I'm fine. You could go to. Can I have some when you got some more hot water or something? You could go to to my website first and foremost, which is miguelmero.com, and there are some examples Can there. you spell that for everybody? Yeah, Miguel, M-I-G-U-E-L, Mera, M-E-R-A, all one word, dot com. Um, and if you search for me, if you do a Google search for me, that should come up first anyway. Um, and yeah, there's a, a section that just got various bits and pieces and some uh, video extracts from bits of films, TV stuff, um, and various audio examples. Um, some things are available on DVD. I did a film called Little Ashes um, and iTunes to download, um, which stars this. Uh, thank you um, very much. Thank you. This teen heartthrob, um, uh, Robert Pattinson, stars in it. Oh yeah, isn't he in? He's the he's the vampire. The vampire. In the vampire kid. things. Yeah, Person. vampire kid. Yeah. Um, so he, you you taught him everything he knew. <laughs> no, I think. <laughs> It was when he was he was doing independent, lower budget stuff, and then he, he quickly grew out grew out. So Twilight is that the is Twilight that is Twilight. the thing that he did. Yeah. And Little Ashes. Is Little Ashes is the name of the film, and that's a film about um, uh, set in Spain in the 1920s to uh, the start of the civil war in Spain, 1936, and um, it's about um, Federico García Lorca, Salvador Dali, and Luis Buñuel, who all were students in Madrid in the 1920s, and it kind of follows their their story. Um, as um, twenty-something sort of. So student. he plays Lorca, I presume. Does it? Um, he plays Dali. He gets. He, he plays he, Dali. He has a moustache at the end and everything. Yeah. So. He's such a cute boy. I thought he'd have to play Lorca. No, no, no. There's, a, there's another guy doing Lorca, and um, yeah, and it's a, it's um, it's an interesting film. It get, it's a bit slow to get going, um, but if you if you stick with it, the, the sort of exposition of the characters is quite interesting. So. Did the music, in any sense, follow the artistic tendencies of these very you diverse, mean, is the music remarkable... surreal or, or... Yeah, um, well, depending on how you regard those different artists, but if you think of, you know, Lorca's poetry as yeah, sure. relating to gypsiness and outsiderdom yeah, and queerness yeah. and the Republic and... Dali Absolutely. Is obviously, a surrealist. Well, the, um, did you try to capture those things? I, I think it is more a sense of Mediterraneanness, whatever that might be. I, I had gone more down a folk route initially, and it kind of veered away from that. Um, and I think that's partly in order to sort of appeal to a, a broader kind of audience, and not to make it so much a, a period piece and a. And a uh, and to make it a more kind of universal sort of story, it, it does. Um, the film deals with um, particularly Lorca and, and Dali's relationship, and it suggests not, I think, particularly controversially, although it was, it seemed to be received controversially, that they'd had a sexual relationship. Um, and um, the film. Um, Includes lots of Dali paintings. The Dali Foundation had provided his paintings for it to be filmed and all the rest of it. But they requested cuts to the film, particularly where there were, was any anything beyond insinuation that Lorca and Dali had actually had some kind of sexual relationship, which is uh, extraordinary in, in this day and age. Um, but but the, you know there's, there, there, there's letters between Lorca and Dali, sort of talking about it. Dali admitted to it sort of in later life that they had had a kind of relationship, and the film kind of makes it the sort. Of Dali's regret that he had not pursued, pursued it. So it's a it's a particular sort of um, 
uh, queer uh, angle that the film takes. And I guess what was interesting about the score um, is that it um, it both it tried to, to present that in a in a, a normative kind of way. Some of the music was about saying gay love is okay and it's romantic. Yeah. So it was yeah. quite sentimental. A lot of the music. There's a scene where there's um, uh, Lorca and Dahlia swimming in a in a bay and they have their first kiss. And it's a, and it's, it's a, a typical uh, romantic, you know, sort of heteronormative kind of scene. Um, but, but again, okay. for sun readers. Yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sorry. No, no, no. That's it's fine. It's yeah, fine. yeah. So, um, but but scored in a way that, yeah. would, and, and that seemed to cause all sorts of uh, of problems for people. There were there were the press were um, offended that the, the memory of Dali would be presented in this this way. It's like, but, the, but people, there's here are the letters, read the letters. But do you, you know. think that's about the queerness to core, or is it about the sentimentality as well? A bit of both. Because both of them have, I think, profound sentimentality in their work, but it's not written about quite in that way, yeah, is yeah, it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, sure. I think it's a bit of both those things. Yeah. I think, and the press... The American press, particularly the, the queer thing, bothered them about this film, um, which was was interesting. Um, and in Spain, it wasn't particularly a, you know, a problem because everyone kind of knew about it and had known about it for ages. And it was like, yeah, whatever. In, in, in effect, why you made the film, we all knew kind of things. Uh, you're, you're, it's like you're presenting something that's supposed to be shocking, but it isn't really. Well, I wonder in the US if people didn't really know who Lorca was, by sure. contrast with Dali. And of course, it's interesting, you were just mentioning high anxiety, because of course Hitchcock probably had the biggest private collection of Dali. Really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he... Well, and Dali worked on... Um... A couple of the movies. Yeah, yeah. He did a, he, I, don't know, I don't think many of his designs were used in the end, but they were certainly drawn upon. What's the Ingmar Bergman, Bergman film um, where she, it's a psychiatric hospital? Yeah. Uh, you know the one? I do, but senior moments. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, but the, the dream sequence is that which Dali's designed the set. Right, right, so. right. And certainly there are a couple of Hitchcock movies who did that. And Hitchcock would buy, I don't know, one a year, I think. Right. Had one of the biggest private collections. Right, right, right. I don't right. know what happened to them, where they ended up. So, so that's wonderful, uh, and that's available as a DVD, mm -hmm. uh, and also downloadable from sure. iTunes, you were saying, as, as one example. I must admit I didn't know of this film, I'm ashamed to say, it sounds incredibly interesting, because that whole period of Spanish history fascinates me, I'm an outsider, not an expert, but, you know, there's something so romantic about what? in Weimar and in the Republic yeah, people yeah. were trying to do around those times and in the Soviet Union you know until everything went belly up <laughs> uh, you know artistically quite incredible yeah, yeah, actually absolutely. whether it's music or design or art or literature I mean really yeah, yeah. what these guys were up to so okay that's one place the other stuff, I tend to do a lot of TV, so TV documentaries, so um, so that's on terrestrial te television and... Um, here in the UK. Here in the UK, well, and sometimes things go you know, around the world. I should say, we 
the, the listenership is not huge to this podcast, but it is downloaded in about 50 countries. Right, okay. So it's good to try to give people information. I mean, that's why your website's really valuable, because sure. that's available anywhere. But maybe you could mention a couple of these documentaries. I did one last year. Was um, I did a feature documentary last year for Channel 4. Which was uh, a, it was called Children of 9/11. So it's a, a 10-year uh, after 9/11 kind of documentary, of which there uh, um, there appear to be sort of one every year, you know, around the anniversary of documentary. Of it. Um, uh, but this one was focusing on the impact on on the kids of having lost family members, parents, and and their kind of stories. Um, and that. That went. That was Channel Four and NBC co-production. But um, as I understand from my PRS statements, it's also it went to Australia. It's been around a bit. Whether you can PRS Performing Rights Society, you get performance uh, royalties for something when it's broadcast. So it's like uh, what we call residuals. In the exactly. States, yes. 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 So I can see, oh, it's been on, that program's been on here, or it's been on there. And does the Internal Revenue Service, or whatever it's called here, have access to these things? They do, <laughs> yes. I, I'm just worried we should act, I don't edit normally, but I want to protect your yes, tax. Yes, it, it, it will As go in my father, tax. father, I want to protect you know, your Thank income. you, yeah. <laughs> yeah, if, if it were, if it were uh, vast amounts of money, then I would be, I'd be keeping quiet, but it's so little that... Uh, no, but yeah, it's um, it's. I'll be putting That's things into my tax statements um, in a few days' time. Now, how was that scored? What was your that experience? Was, of that? that was me and uh, a computer. Um, I'm trying to remember if there was anything live in it. There were there were no live instruments. I like to have at least something, one thing, live thing if I possibly can, um, uh, where where possible. But in this case, it was just me and, and the computer. And um, yeah, and it's difficult because um, what, what do you do about it for a documentary about that? First of all, you have a whole there's a kind of an ethical thing about should you be you know doing something like this anyway? Um, they, well, they're not necessarily still so young, are they? No, no, they're they're, they're grown up and, and um, you know, of course they're at different ages and the, and you know it followed different stories and of course some people have as a reaction have followed a particular path. So there was a girl who'd become a wrestler because her father was into wrestling and had become very successful as a wrestler. There was a guy who'd you know who'd got into drugs as a way of coping and had sort of been bounced around a few times and had you know was sort of on the up but not really and you know you kind of, um, so there were differing you know stories of people who it had affected them in very very different ways. How many ways. musicologists? No musicologists, no. They no musicologists? No, no, no music. Cultural either. studies professors? No. No one had found solace in real in, in real, <laughs> real knowledge? No, no oh, I'm afraid well, not. Well. Or at least that's uh, that doesn't play so well on, uh, on a, on on a TV series. Yeah. <laughs> So, but it, it was interesting, and yeah. and it was um, uh, it was very frank from a lot of those people. So, um, and and on the one hand, you so there were kind of there were mixed messages. Some of the, these these now grown up kids were going, I'm sick of all the attention surrounding 9/11 and and, uh, and uh, having to you know be defined by that. But then equally, you think, but you've just put yourself forward to be in a in a, a documentary about that, you know, no one forced you to, to do that. So there, there's kind of mixed sort of um, messages there as well. Or that's the way for some people of helping them sort of work through it or deal with it or whatever. So 
Um, did you, did you, I'm sorry, go, go ahead. On. Did and you score them based on their individual interviews and personalities then? I mean, did you have, you know, this is theme for X, for X or this y. is theme for P? I think it probably, it started that way and then it, that didn't, that hardly ever works actually these days, I don't think. Sort of a, a leitmotif for character. Um, and it more became sort of thematic material around particular issues. So one of the, the, the concepts I tried to pursue was the idea of loss, because actually that's really what it was about. It wasn't really about 9-11. It was about people dealing with loss in, in different ways. Um, so I tried to... What I did for a while was to compose bits of music and then try and take something away from it, from the core of it, so that it would kind of feel incomplete in some way. Um, and uh, that was kind of a nice idea that didn't work very well in some cases because you think that just sounds like an odd piece of music <laughs> which we don't get a resolution I was going to say it, I, can, I can just imagine I don't know about Channel 4 but at NBC they're saying this Mera guy what's he on about what's he on about <laughs> what's going on here why is it stop well that, that yeah the, the other thing is that the the UK version was a feature length, so it was an hour and a half, but the NBC one was, was an hour, so it's much, much tighter. And there were a lot of different people in it, so it's really quite compressed for the NBC one. Um, yeah, and we went down, I mean, that, that's an interesting working relationship with that director, that's a director I've worked with a lot. And, um, and, and I think also with documentary it's different because you don't get really often a finished um, version of the, of the film. The film is being edited really right up till the, the point of it being broadcast in many cases. And whole sections move around, and you know something that was in part six has suddenly ended up in part one, and you know, and so on and so on. So um, you can't you can't really think of it in, in those kind of terms that you would a development of a particular kind of thematic material. Um, so I would compose material for a particular issue. You know, we need something that's slow and does this and does that, and then there'd be variations on that, and they'd be editing it with the film and going, we really want to use this because I think that would make this kind of link but the music needs to be stripped back for us to be able to do that or, or whatever. So, in other words, did you write some music that was pumped up and here's a female wrestler versus here's some music for I'm a heroin addict? No, it wasn't quite as specific. I think it's right. that it would have started like that but I probably didn't know enough about the characters yeah. from the way it was edited in the first sort of version. And, you know, they, they interviewed a lot of people and some people ended up more in it, some people ended up being less in it, and so on. I'm interested in what you said, though, about how when I asked you whether you wrote, you know, Q's theme or whatever, but that doesn't really work much anymore, yeah. I think you said. What do you mean by that? I think we find it um, too cliché. Um, and there are some circumstances where it, where it works, but if you think of a film in the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years that uses leitmotif associated to character, I can't, I can't really think of one. Um, well, just the Bond theme and... I know, but... And that's it, you can't do it. Really. Yeah, but that's a whole, there's a whole heritage of that, you know. And, um, and David Arnold, when he first started scoring those Bond films, did it much more than he does sort of now, you know. It, the, you'll get the Bond theme once during the Bond film, you know, it's not... And it's very carefully chosen where that, that happened. So. Well, you know, there used to be an expression to describe the Hollywood continuity system, which was triple redundancy. <laughs> yeah, yes. Right? Yeah. And 
with the idea being, fundamentally, we've got an audience of migrants to the United States for whom English is not a first language. Uh, they're like the moguls themselves were, yeah. and uh, they don't have a lingua franca, really even English, particularly in many cases. We've got to have lots of signposts. Absolutely, yeah. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and there's no, you know, the audience has got more sophisticated. There's yeah. no time. If you look at, I don't know, um, a Corngold score from the 30, Robin, uh, Robin Hood, Adventures of Robin Hood, let's say. Um, there's light motifs everywhere for every single character and the materials developed like that. And it's pretty much scored wall to wall. You know, you have an hour and a half film with an hour and 20 minutes of, of, of heroic Errol Flynn is, a, um, is doing amazing things kind of music. Um, but I think most audiences would find that far, you know, they would find that parodic if you did it. Um, yeah. Um, so you, and also there's much less music, I think, you know, um, with, with the exception of, say, some action-adventure kind of film, mm -hmm. but in most kind of... Uh, films, car chases and car chases and are shooters. so boring, you've <laughs> you really need it. anything to enable us Indeed. to survive. Indeed. Uh, even to the point in Taken 2, where the girl gets to drive in the car chase. I haven't seen That's Taken 2. desperate they are to make it... We're lively, and it's kind of fun. It's the teenage daughter of Liam Neeson, who's yeah. failed the driving test three times, right. and she pilots the car in the big car chase. Right. And I find them massively boring, but it's actually pretty well done. Right. So, um, Miguel, you mentioned uh, the, the, the movie Little Ashes. Yep. You mentioned the Children of 911. Uh, any other particular? We've got about five minutes left, and I, I want to get a couple of more titles from, if I could, and then get back to okay, the drunken fine, yeah. violist. Um, so check out my website. There's um, there's a history of the Boy Scouts um, with Ian Hislop presenting. Well, a, a queer view. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they're, <laughs> they're, yeah, it does sort of deal with, I mean, very, very gently deal, sort of brings in issues about his... Lord Baden-Powell, my partner's downfall. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, but it's, that's really good fun, that, that documentary. Good. That is interesting. Um, and, you know, I've done, I did a, um, something about Auschwitz, which was an amazing thing to try and score and think about how you'd even score. Outfits? Auschwitz. Oh, Auschwitz. Auschwitz, Sorry, the, Auschwitz the forgotten evidence. Um, and it was, it's basically, it's bringing up evidence that's been there before, but for a TV audience about um, how much the Allies knew about what was going on in Auschwitz and whether they could have done something about it before the, the war ended. Um, so, that, you know, they're, they're, they're two kind of extremes of the kind of work. You know, my, my father was a broadcaster, a newsreader during the war, and he told me that everybody in the newsroom knew about Auschwitz. Mm. This is in Australia. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Long before people actually walked in. And I apologise for saying outfits. That was genuinely a mishearing yeah, yeah, on sorry, my part and not you know, stupid attempt at humour. Um, so, yes, you know, people often say that it's misquoted, but we remember Adorno, also an interesting composer, saying that remark about no more poetry after Auschwitz, and it's a complicated statement that actually deserves a lot more interpretation, but how did you find music to cover that? That was, it was, it was very difficult. Um, and it was, again, it was wanting not to sentimentalize or, or draw, really draw um, on the, um, the emotional 
your core, on the emotion in a really, really sort of uh, overt way. I think was, and that's that's the direct the direction the director kept pushing me, you know, a, a, away from. It was sort of much more objective music. I did a bit of work with um, with a cantor, a Jewish cantor, um, and I'd recorded him, and he, he was um, he's the cantor at Central Synagogue here in London, and I recorded some stuff thinking we might use some of this material, and. Um, and we didn't in the end, and the, and, um, and the director was kind of adamant that we shouldn't because it was just too much, you know, pulling at sort of heartstrings. But I ended up using some of, of that kind of material and making arrangements of it um, uh, in a more sort of abstract kind of way. And uh, it was very simple in the end. You know, we had, we had a, a piano, violin, and, and cello, and me and the computer. Um, and yeah, I think simple was, was kind of the and not trying to not trying to comment too much um, uh, because you know the, the, well, the story itself is you know is plenty uh, emotional and difficult and horrific enough without you saying hey everyone you know this is horrific you know? yeah um, and and very powerful sort of documentary as a as a consequence actually very very nicely made and. Um, and revealed, you know, a whole lot of things. I'm, I, I don't read a lot of that kind of history, but it did reveal to me some things I didn't know about. Was going went on in camps, and 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 you hear some of the survivors, you know, talking. And I know they've they've been in many documentaries and have spoken about their experience a lot. But just the recounting the story with complete sort of objectivity is extraordinary. You know, I once was on a panel that was about Schindler's List yeah. after it had been out for yeah, yeah. a couple of years. I was the only. What do you think of them? Um, I think it runs into the same problems as the original novel in inverted commas Schindler's Art. Yeah. Uh, I was the only goy boy in the room, let yeah. alone on the panel, and there were lots of survivors yeah. and lots of children of survivors. And I talked about Schindler's Ark, the Thomas Keneally novel. Uh, you may remember there was great controversy when it won the Booker Prize. Mm -hmm because people said, how can this be a novel when it's based on the testimony of you know, hundreds of people? Yeah. You know, this does not qualify. Uh, was, and he called it a documentary fiction, right. which is also a term Frederick Wiseman yeah, yeah. uses about okay. his films, interestingly enough. And a lot of controversy about that, and I explained how that sets the scene for the difficulty of the idea of distinguishing between fiction and documentary. Yeah, yeah, sure. how it seems easy, but actually it's not, because so many tropes of storytelling of course, yeah. are used in documentary, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Yeah, right? yeah. And this is not an indictment, but let's be honest about it. Anyway, uh, one of the people in the audience, not a survivor, got up and thundered at me, don't you realise that you were all saved by us in the United States? You Europeans did all this for everybody, and, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, survivors came up to me afterwards and said, thank you. Uh, you know, they talked about how the Spielberg-Yale project of the explaining the Shoah yeah, yeah. Uh, was one where they had lied to the camera. Right. They still did not believe that they could tell the truth in a way that was recorded, really? that was unvarnished, because these bastards would come and get them. Right. right. And so the idea that there was an unvarnished filmic truth where the camera was on you and you just told it like it was, yeah, sure. to them was ludicrous. Of course. It was all about the politics of storytelling yeah. and the impossibility of the truth. And these, they showed me the marks yeah, that yeah. they had. Yeah, yeah. And the same with the children of some of these survivors. You know, they, they were so alive to the fictive nature of how to 
explain this, yeah. even as the materiality of the horror was there on their of course. bodies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, this, anyway, sorry, slightly sort of. No, no, that's story. that's great. Um, yeah, and it's it's a it's a. A particular problem, I think, in that film. I mean, you know, the, the whole the whole girl in the red dress moment, you know, is kind of where I think it, that um, plays itself out most yeah. most obviously. You know. um, so perhaps you could give us a couple more titles, and then let's get back to this. Okay. Um, I've <laughs> done a few Horizons, uh, which is a, a documentary sort of science TV sort of program. Sorry, something. Horizons. Horizons. Oh, yes, it's been going for a long time. Yeah. Famous program. Uh, a few of those. I'm trying to think what else I've done. Quite a lot of, of uh, if you attend film festivals and you see you're interested in sort of shorter films, I do quite a lot of that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, go, go to the website, there's a and variety of things there. So let's get to this broader question. Uh, I mean, we've addressed a lot of broad questions here from the Holocaust <laughs> to uh, literally the difference between scoring an advertisement or television commercial to scoring a documentary or a Bond movie. But this is the future of live performance, in a sense, yeah. particularly in the area of whatever we call it, fine music, classical music, Western European music, yeah. but orchestral music might be a, a way of describing okay. it. Yeah. And, um, so your um, your violist was were, thought that uh, it was much healthier in Europe than in, in the States, basically. Um, well, assuming any of what he said was you are like true. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> You've met a drunk musician in a bar, yeah. Um, I think it's a tough time for orchestras. I mean, there are... Um, many wouldn't survive without some form of, of government subsidy, and that, that's all being cut. I mean, you know, at the moment, uh, there's been stuff in the press today, this week, um, about uh, Newcastle... Um, County Council has cut completely its arts budget of two and a half million quid. Not in you know scaling it down. It's just said we we are not going to do fund any more arts anymore. Um, and presumably that impacts on the Sage Gateshead, which is a big sort of arts venue there, and various other sort of local, the Northern Symphonia. I don't know. Various other kind of um, ensembles will be impacted by that. Is there a future? Well, it's. Um, it's challenging because the audience that go to orchestral concerts tend to be an older audience. That's what tends to be the audience for, for orchestral concerts. Younger people go to other stuff, they're not so interested in it. So we have a museum kind of aesthetic about what, what an orchestra is, in this country at least. The people often think that the saviour to that is something like film music, a commercial form of orchestral sort of music. Um, but even that's pretty tough. I mean, I, you know, the, the main orchestras are scrabbling around. You use this. You've got this computer. I've got the computer, yeah. Well, I've got the computer and I don't have the budgets. You know, no one is saying to me, um, or, or rather I get given a package deal, and, and, and I always try and put money into, um, into live music, but partly because it sounds better and partly because I enjoy the experience of working with those musicians. But it's... But the days when you can afford an orchestra, you know, they're not they're not many of those those projects really. They're very few and far between. And because you can fake it reasonably well with technology, and some people who do it much better than me can fake it incredibly well, to the point where you you know you really have to listen hard to know the difference. So it's it's a, a tough time. What I've been doing is working with players, sort of individually, and getting them to do things that doesn't matter how good you are with the technology, the technology can't do it. So they improvise or 
they, they, you know, they do some kind of extended technique or something that's, that sounds really distinctively different from what you can do on a computer. Um, and I, I'm enjoying that process a lot in working with but some musicians. The fundamental problem here is, in fact, not technology. The fundamental problem is audience cultivation. Sure. Isn't it? That you, we, they, are not substituting for audiences as they get older. That's, yeah. what, that's what you started with. Yeah. We all blame this on technology. But I often think that whilst, of course, that's relevant, audience cultivation or taste or interest or development is really important. It is, and it's, um, it's a real... Why has happened? I think people try to make it happen. Um, I think in, other, in some other countries they do it much better, but they have a much better... Um, tradition of valuing and appreciating the arts full stop. So if you go to, let's say, Finland, for example, um, or um, uh, the Czech Republic, you know, if you go to the Czech Republic, there are state operas and people go to the opera, you know, uh, every month. You know, everyone goes to the opera because right. um, they, they think it's important. Um, you know, they, people come over here and they say, oh, as a, as a sort of a question, how often do you go to the opera? And I don't know, you know, once every few years kind of thing. And but, I, you know, London is supposed to be cultured, isn't it? I, I go, you know, every month with my family and we all, you know. So there's that. And, and I, but I don't, you know, there's lots of things that the orchestras do. They try to do outreach things. They try and get kids involved. I'm not sure that how much impact that ultimately has as opposed to just a broader societal care and appreciation of, of the arts more, more generally. Um, and it seems to me, you know, that there's again in the press this week about the, the EBAC, about what people, um, kids are learning in school. Do you know about this? The, I, I do, yes. Um, but so, please explain this to people. So the, the EBAC is this international baccalaureate. That's right. And um, so Michael Gove, as um, the education minister, is wanting to make um, a much more refined core for what kids learn in school and um, that means that things like music and um, art and drama are being excluded in, instead of maths, English and um, core sciences basically. Um, so that's, that's quite worrying to me in that you know, I, ca I came to music because it, there was an opportunity in my school, you know, a standard sort of state school. Didn't have um, wealthy parents particularly. Um, it wasn't particularly middle class sort of upbringing. So for me, that opportunity only came because of, of, of the opportunity that the school and the local council provided. Um, and uh, yeah, other countries do that much better. They think it's much more important that people have that kind of opportunity and that rounded experience. And I can only see that sort of diminishing and decreasing if this if this goes ahead. So crass utilitarianism of the Anglo-Saxon world, disclosed yet again for having its own nutty rituals that are claimed to be pragmatic, but in yeah, yeah. fact are not. Yeah, they're so short-sighted. Um, so it's that's a real yeah that's uh, that's quite depressing. I'm, I'm afraid. Yeah, this, really... we, don't, we can't finish like this. <laughs> but fundamentally, what you're saying is that the the man in the bar spoke the truth to power. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. I don't really know the situation in the states, and and I mean obviously much bigger distances, um, and how orchestras are, are are funded. Certainly, there's something about 
Europe um, you know, being a very diverse series of nations with their own kind of approaches to things and just smaller in, in, in scale, you know. Yeah. There are probably fewer um, orchestras in, uh, in America, uh, you know, overall compared to, let's say, you know, Europe as a whole, or in rough sort of geographical sort of scale. But I don't know. I've never, I've never lived there. You've, you've lived out there. So oh, what's sure. your? Well, they have a lot of massive private philanthropy. Of course, that's, that's a big difference. That's yeah. very important. And a lot of one of the reasons why Cleveland is important is that quite a lot of very, very hardworking, very artistically committed European migrants, particularly from uh, escapees from Germany okay. or folks from Eastern Europe earlier settled there. Yeah. Uh, it's a real centre and they were very committed to supporting this sort of thing. Is that Sim also why it's a, such, it was such a swing state in the last uh, election? No, that's not them. That's actually more about the working class uh, white, uh, blue collar employees versus the more rural uh, and the urban folks right, right. who include the descendants of the people I just referred to yeah. versus uh, rural and some suburban voters. Um, similarly out in California, you know, if you there are just very big donors who are extremely committed and some corporations that are quite committed. And again, frankly, it is a lot of you know Jewish money that is very, very dedicated to philanthropy yeah, yeah. Uh, in ways that uh, WASP money, black money, Asian money, so far has not been right. uh, when it comes to, the, if you like, this European tradition. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, WASPs like to go to this stuff, but they don't want to pay for it. Right, right. Uh, and these other groups tend to give in areas that are more associated, again, with one's own social identity. Yeah, of course. Understandably. And of course, yes, there are subsidies. Yeah. Um, and a lot of these institutions are still run by WASPs, even though they're not writing the checks. So there's also a complicated inter-ethnic yeah, yeah. inter struggle going okay. on. But some of it is about that, frankly. It's about patterns of philanthropy. Uh, and some of that is about tax codes, yeah. and some of it's about cultural capital uh, and different patterns in different parts of the country. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, there are some cities that provide, some states that provide subsidies that are a bit more likely to go to high European culture yeah, okay. historically than other areas. But a lot of it is about massive, major philanthropy by people who think that this is something worth doing. Yeah. And that's that's the model that um, the government would like to see sort of happen here, but I'm, I'm not sure it really can happen here. Well, this is more your area than mine. You'll know much more about it. Well, it's, it's, it's a very complicated story, but it's got to be partly about buying legitimacy. Yeah, sure. And the ruling class here couldn't give a shit about buying <laughs> legitimacy. Yeah. Uh, and entry into the ruling class is much more complicated than that. Mm. and yeah, much yeah. more associated with new money. Yeah. So that's why, I mean, but it's more its more difficult than that because a lot of it is about a genuine, very profound commitment to this stuff. Yeah. That isn't just about showing your money. No, it's no, sure. a very profound commitment to notions of dedication to a life. Yeah. You know, when you talk to some of these major donors, what they like about orchestral music is the dedication to a life. 
and that's how they distinguish it from popular music, right? Okay. Where there um, there isn't the same dedication, you know, years of full-time study with no money, yeah, yeah, absolute dedication, hours and hours and yeah, hours every day, yeah, yeah. starting on time, doing it on time, finishing it on time, all those norms that we can mark and criticise, but represent a discipline yeah. that is very amenable mm. to. Uh, Lots of notions of both cultural and occupational style. Mm. So I think discipline is a really big part of it. Actually. Right. Well, yeah, and then uh, that's the core of a lot of, of the performing musician's life. Absolutely, you know, um, you, you can't do it until you've, you know, you have to have practiced those hours, and you, really, you have to have been doing it for 10, 15 years, you know, before you're you're good enough. So, yeah, I think it's. Um, I used to work in a in a conservatoire, um, a very well known conservatoire, and um, there were always a few people who um, you would say were genius. You know, there were a couple of people who were just extraordinary, extraordinary musicians and could have any kind of career they wanted. And um, without fail, there were sort of three or four in my time there who got straight into orchestra jobs which are very kind of rare in this in this country and you know they were in the you know third or fourth desk of the LSO or whatever RPO or whatever kind London of orchestra. Symphony Orchestra in the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra whatever and they all gave up after a couple of years and um, with the kind of statement of you know this my whole life has been building up to this and um, so I got there and actually you know, it's not all that, you know. The money's okay, we spend most of the time touring, playing the same repertoire. Um, you know, it's it's fun you get to work with this conductor, This that's exciting. But, but uh, yeah, so there, there are quite a few of those, sort of, and they all did something else. They all sort of retrained or did something else with music, but they all kind of got out of the orchestral musician sort of lifestyle. It was too restrictive? Given their incredible natural ability and their I years think partly that, and I think it was partly the expectation that it would be more interesting and more mentally stimulating and more exciting than it really was, and more challenging, and that there, there would be a progression. You know, that you okay, you, you you've now you're now in one of the best orchestras in the world. So, you know, what does that does that mean for your development as a performer? Well, it kind of means that you'll be playing, you know that same piece and you'll be playing Mahler and Beethoven and um, and whatever else um, and you'll be doing you know Handel's Messiah uh, 20 times over you know this particular period of the year and, and all the rest of it and so it was, I think it was after a few years people thought does, does anything else happen here or is it you know is it all, all the same I think they just wanted something a bit more you know, interesting from, from their life, from their life's sort of effort, from all the effort that had gone into it actually, for the end result to be, um, yeah, somehow more worthy, I don't know. Um, and, it, it, you know, I'm, I'm mentioning it because it, there, it was not an isolated example. There were three or four phenomenally talented people who, who wanted to do something else, having reached what, you know, you would think is the pinnacle of, of a career. You know. Maybe they got there a bit too early, you know, maybe they'll appreciate it you know, in later life, I don't know. But.
Well, Miguel, I'd, I'd love to come back and talk to you again actually quite soon because A, I want to talk more about this music stuff, but B, we didn't get on to what I wanted us also to discuss, which is your music academia, if you like. Right. Not, not, not so much your pedagogy, though, partially that, but also your research. Right. Of other kinds. So, can I tempt you back into the pod? Yes, yeah, sure. One more time. Okay, yeah. Very good. Thank you. Thank you.